0: Hey guys, it's me, I'm back. Today, a little bit of a special episode. Basically, um, I'm just gonna read a paper I printed out, an essay by Mark Kokelberg called Artificial Intelligence, Networks, and Spirituality. Um, I don't know, even I probably just printed this one at random because I was, you know, last time I was interviewed for a magazine i wanted to like sound smart so i just like read some essays about spirituality in the internet that i was interested in and it helped me kind of like sound smart <laughs> um and basically i'm about to go on a podcast someone's podcast later today so that might it might it might help just to read this again and then i went to read it and i was like i don't think i could read this unless it's out loud so i'm trying to find a comfortable position um so I'm just like laying in bed <laughs> and I'm just gonna read read the essay. But I don't really wanna hold the phone in my hand. I'm trying to get settled. Um so yeah, if you don't wanna hear an essay, you could skip this episode. Um but let's just get into it. The spirit in the network models for spirituality in a technological culture. Can a technological culture accommodate spiritual experience and spiritual thinking? Yes. Duh. Today, there are two dominant views on the relation between spirituality and technological culture. Some hold that technological culture is not hospitable and even hostile to spirituality. On this view, science and technology have created a world devoid of meaning in a society that has been purged of the sacred. Spirituality, then, is not to be found in our material culture, which has divorced us from the sacred. Others share the disenchantment and secularization view, but argue, in addition, that there is or should be a movement of re-enchantment. This can mean the re-enchantment of nature. Alienation can be overcome by turning toward religion or nature, where the sacred, untouched by technology, can still be found. But it is also can mean that re-enchantment of the material world— on this view, we should recognize that contemporary technological artifacts such as computers are not dead objects but have spirits. Instead of trying to escape from a technology, we should perceive the magic in technology and re-enchant the material. Okay, so I would propose even that um, there's a third point of view. Basically, they're saying there are people who think technology is just devoid and hostile to spirituality, and then there are others who share that disenchantment in secular view but then think there should be re-enchantment and then there are others like me who think it's been enchanted the entire time and that um the disenchantment of the world was another kind of enchantment maybe even and there have been and it never fully the world was never fully disenchanted and I kind of believe in an animism point of view, like this the end of the sentence is saying we need to perceive the magic in technology and re-enchant material and that computers are not dead, but have spirits. And it's not just that like computers are not dead, but have spirits, but so is all material in my point of view, which is, you can call animism or like that all things are conscious or all things are living in a very broad sense. In this essay, I show that both the disenchantment and the reenchantment view not only rest on a very one-sided interpretation of the relationship between science, nature, and religion, and therefore misconstrue the problem, but in addition tend to leave out some powerful metaphorical resources for thinking and experiencing that dis- that disclose a much broader repertoire of spiritual responses to contemporary technological culture. As it turns out, these are not just possibilities. Many of these responses are already incorporated in that culture, in our daily technological experiences and practices. In my reconstruction of different models for spirituality, I pay particular attention to metaphors, which are not only indispensable for thinking and living in general, but have been proven to be crucial to theology and religion. Metaphors for spirituality, then, shape our thinking and actions. Okay, so they kind of go on to say what I just said. Okay, so now there is a header. It says, "A spiritual and anti-spiritual modernity: Spirit gone <laughs> <laughs> to the modern mind, um, which has divided our culture into different domains. Spirituality has little to do with technology. Religion is spiritual. Technology is material. Religion is going on in the head, and technology is going on in the world. The world is a spiritual." Moreover, although religion um, played a public and societal role in the past, in pre-modern times, our modern society has been secularized, that is, purified from religion and religious institutions. Spirit, if it exists at all, has left the world. This leaves us with the material world in which it is up to us to create meaning. Obviously, that kind of point of view is incorrect. Some regret the situation but try to accept it. Others are more active and continue the mission of purification. For some, religion is a barrier to scientific process. Daniel Dennett, for instance, tries to keep religion out of evolutionary biology, and for conservative others, technology is a threat to older forms of life which are supposed to be full of meaning, a richness it is assumed that can never be matched by contemporary technological culture and even actively threatened by it. And for many, religion is not a problem, but is simply viewed as irrelevant to, le- to their lives or practices. One may practice engineering without connecting that practice to one's religious ideas or practice, or the absence of a practice. Technology then is seen as either neutral toward religion and vice versa, or hostile towards it. It's assumed that technology and religion belong to different spheres. On the basis of that assumption, it is argued either that religion should not be allowed to colonize technology if it should be granted existence at all, or that technology should not be allowed to damage religion and its associated life forms. The view that we better understand the world in non-religious terms has been described in terms of secularization. Many observers of modern society have argued that this view has been embraced in modern times. It is said that we live in a modern, secularized society. But there is another more controversial term. One of the founders of sociology, Max Weber, coined the term disenchantment to describe the shift from religious understanding of the world to a scientific understanding of the world. He used the German word Eschenberg, the opposite of "Besenberg," which means magic or spell. By using these terms, Weber emphasized a change in our subjective subjective experience of the world rather than a separation of secular society and religious institutions. For Weber, in the modern experience, science and technology have replaced the religious ex- the religious experience of mystery and magic by scientific clarity, calculation, rationalization, intellectualization, and taking control. This secularization and disenchantment view is inadequate for many reasons, reasons that refer to both the history of science and technology and to present techno-spiritual practices. Let me offer seven arguments why there is an intimate connection between science and technology on the one hand and religion and spirituality on the other. This will prepare the ground for a further exploration and relation between technology and spiritual Spirituality, my discussion of several models for spirituality and technological culture. Okay, basically, this is kind of like the thesis of the book Secularisms by Jacobson and Pellegrini. And in that book, they argue that there are actually many kinds of secularity. There's not one secularity that exists opposing all religions and that secularisms are actually formed based on the religions found in the culture where um, that secularism took hold or was, you know, implemented or governmentized or whatever. Um, and that, you know, basically what this author is also saying, that the religious the religious and the secular actually co-create each other. They don't exist independently. And especially secularisms are responses to spirituality and often incorporate morality from the spirituality of the culture that they were created in. Okay. First, the modern view strongly assumes that religion has nothing to do with the birth and development of science and technology. Bronislaw... Swierensky had argued that, that contemporary technological ideas and practices remain closely bound up with religious ways of thinking and acting. Rather than being autonomous forces with their own logics, our history of thought and action is a history of technology-and-religion. As Anne Cole puts it, the secular society, as well as contemporary sciences, came into being not by making a decisive break with religious thought, but through the transformation of The sacred. According to Sverzinski, secularization never happened. The story of the technological transformation of nature and the story of the ongoing sacralization of nature are one story and not two. He proposes that we see the modern secular, including science and technology, as a distinctive product of the West's religious history. Like, just what I said. To support his thesis, he draws attention to the theological roots of modern science. He argues that the relationship between modern science and religion has not been one solely of conflict. Instead, the emergence of modern science in the 17th century marked a spectacular fusion between religious thought and natural philosophy. Rene Descartes, Isaac Newton, Gottfried Wilhelm, Liebens did not abandon God, but did talk about God in a different way. Modern science was not the abandonment, but the transformation of theological discourse. Swarzynski shows this by offering a story of transformations from the primal and archaic sacred to the monotheistic sacred, the Protestant sacred, the modern sacred, and the postmodern sacred. As for technology, consider the close links between religious practices from ancient to modern times. Medieval monasteries needed clocks to regulate prayer, and in modern times, clocks were required for regulating church services and limiting the length of the sermons. We also may want to remind ourselves of the history of chemistry, a science that evolved from alchemy from the se- between the 17th and 19th centuries. Giuseppe del Rey has argued that the elimination of the spirit of alchemy must be considered a loss. A reason why is given by Morris Berman, who sees the story of modernity as one of progressive disenchantment. The view of nature, which predominated the West, down to the eve of the scientific revolution, was that of an enchanted world. Rocks, trees, rivers, and clouds were all seen as wondrous, alive, and human beings felt at home in this environment. The cosmos, in short, was a place of belonging. A member of this cosmos was not an alienated observer of it, but a direct participant in its drama, Alchemy, as it turns out, was the last great coherent expression of participating consciousness in the West. Hmm, that's interesting. I would look into more into that actually about alchemy. um Hold on, give me one minute here to take a little break and I'll be right back. Okay, and we're back. So it says if um, Swarzynski is right, then there has been no disenchantment, but transformation and the spirit was never eliminated in the first place. That's basically what I said, like when I read the opening paragraph. That was my reaction to. Second, we may well ask how secular contemporary science and technology really is. Contemporary science still has its myths, such as the claim to have privileged access to objective truth, which made Bruno Latour call for a secularization of science. Um... Perhaps the most powerful myth, and one that can help us to understand why transhumanism and human enchantment are attractive to many, is that technology could do what popular Christian religion has always promised, offer us immortality. Really? David Noble argues that the reason why our culture developed such an obsession with technology is that technology promises the transcendence of mortality. Again, this leaves religion and technology deeply intertwined rather than um, separate. Like Szerzynski, Noble argues that the founders of modern science, such as Francis Bacon, had religious ambitions, or more precisely, their scientific and religion ambitions were fused. They wanted to achieve knowledge of the divine design of nature and ultimately of the mind of the creator. Later this later, The spirit of engineering met that of American militant wait Yeah. Later the spirit of engineering met that of American militant Protestantism. Aimed at creating paradise on Earth, technology was considered a means for salvation. Noble points to contemporary scientific projects such as the space program. Artificial intelligence and genetic engineering is being motivated motivated by religious concerns. They are attempts to literally escape the earth to reach eternal life and to overcome the limitations of current existence. The dream of creating life out of dead material is rooted in mysticism and alchemy. In the 16th century, legend about the creation of Gollum of the golem, a clay figure that is given life. Transhumanists today propose that we upload ourselves into a computer system where we can continue to exist. Thus, rather than meeting basic human needs, technology transcends such mortal concerns. And I think that is probably the crux of the problem with technology today. Instead of using technology to meet our current needs, to help people and help life live as it is now it instead tries to bypass that and overcome the limitations of our current existence in this fantastical way such as oh well we'll soon be able to upload our consciousness to a computer and we'll be relieved of all of our pain instead of being like okay how can we use computers to relieve the pain that is here now right it's kind of hilarious Philip Hefner has argued that technology shows that we are finite and mortal. In films, we see robots that are much stronger than we are, and we realize again and again that we are mortal. Technology is a mirror that shows us who, what we are. And in response, we use technology such as genetic engineering and medicine to live longer, preferably forever. We create technology in order to compensate for our finitude. A good deal of our technology seems to be the, a denial of death in an attempt to escape it. This is what really troubles us. Technology reveals our deepest intentions. Thus, technology can be described with a term usually reserved for religion. It is about what Paul Tillich called ultimate concern. In its engagement with finitude and death, technology becomes almost explicitly religious. It thus becomes what it has always been. Third, to think that technology is less important to what we care most about is to disregard the insights of philosophy of technology. Technology shapes what we do, how we feel, and therefore who we are. And as Marshall McLuhan suggested already in the 1960s, long before the internet, technology changes how we think and feel. Technology also shapes our self-image. It helps us to understand who we are." What is our relation to technology? Have we always been cyborgs, as Andy Clark argues? Or, in any case, technology is not separate from our self-understanding. If we disconnect technology and religion, we have a misguided understanding of technology and what it does to us. According to Swierzynski, Technology is mysterious, not because we do not understand how it works, but because what it does goes beyond the intention of the designers. Contemporary philosophy of technology teaches us that things are not just instruments to reach those ends. They also change the ends themselves. Yes. Peter Paul Verbeck speaks about things that do things, things that have consequences for our lives and our existence. Technologies extend and transform these ends and thus transform our concepts of human need, flourishing, and even identity. I have to really agree with that. There's a performative quality to technology. They do things in the world beyond what they were designed to do. Um and they change the fabric of the world independently of people almost, but not independently. It's a symbiosis. Okay, let me pause for one more second here. I just have to check my phone real quick. Okay. Finally, as illustrated in Hefner's point about morality, technology is not only about mirroring what we are, but also about trying to be different from what we are. Technology is about imagining what is not yet, but what could be. Hefner links this with freedom and the concept of transcendence. And in other words, technology is about what we really care about. Oh, you could even go further here and say that it's about transhumanism, transgenderism, like that, which is imagining what is not yet, but what could be, that which reaches towards the horizon. Um, Fourth, technology does not exclude wonder and mystery as it escapes our understanding and control. Our efforts to control and rationalize have not been completely successful to say the least. Technology shows our power to change the world, but it also shows the limits of that power. We still live in a world full of risk, Albeit risks different from those in modern and pre modern times, technology leaves enough room for magic and mystery in that sense. Moreover, science itself, as it explores the universe above and within us, above and below, becomes increasingly more mysterious and invites wonder. We feel awe when we learn about the stars, our brains, and the nano world. This especially happens when we lack full understanding of the universe we discover and of the technologies we create. Science is also increasingly concerned with the invisible, which, according to most moderns, has always been a mark of the spiritual. Finally, as sociologists of science have shown, even its method is less rational than previously supposed. Many scientific discoveries seem more closely related to the religious concepts of miracle and grace than to getting the facts right. They appear as gifts of nature. We can do our best, but what we have to wait and see what the outcome will be, what is given to us, we we feel that the unexpected can happen. Neither scientific discoveries nor the consequences of technology are entirely within our control. Fifth, apart from these intimate connections between technological and religious thinking and experience, there are more straightforward ones as well. For instance, we sometimes speak of things as if they are persons or if they had spirit. And religious persons often use the internet. (laughs) Jeff Zaleski, 1997, has shown that this use of cyberspace changes the meaning of spirituality, religion, and sacred. A recent study shows that the clergy, uh, church leaders, and religious institutions in the U.S. use the internet for purposes of spiritual formation and communication. Genevieve Bell has studied what she calls techno-spiritual practices, new technologies that also do cultural work and are linked to narratives of progress, change, and revolution. She suggests that in the United States, young people use the World Wide Web more frequently for religious purposes than for pornography, and that some of these practices are connected to the agendas of religious organizations. Sixth, these down-to-earth connections between technology and religion suggest that the influence of religion in society is still considerable and that we must revise the secularization thesis. We moderns have not banned religion from our technological culture and society, and when and where we have tried to do so, such as in Western Europe, it has not been entirely successful. Not only is secularization a more local phenomenon than many had supposed but the many Christian and non-Christian forms of spirituality that live on in many societies, including Western Europe ones, suggest that spirituality still plays a significant role in society and culture. Seventh the assumption that spirituality is necessarily amaterial or anti-material is mistaken as the history of art and anthropology shows, natural and artificial objects have always been part of spiritual experience practice, narrative, imagery, and thinking, and they continue to play that role today. Moreover, am I even recording? OK. <laughs> Moreover, many religions do not advocate a hostile attitude towards um, matter, objects, artifacts, or technology. One may consider animism and non-modern cultures here which arguably no longer exist in pure form. They are all transformed by modernity, to some extent. But there are other examples, materiality and embodiment can be seen as important to Christian spirituality, which has not entirely eradicated magic. The doctrine of transubstantiation in Roman Catholic theology teaches that in the sacrament of communion, the substance, but not the appearance of the bread and wine, changes into the blood and body of Christ. Thus, hostility toward matter reflects only one interpretation of the relationship between material and the spiritual. It does not exhaust the vast landscape of her present, past, and future spiritual imagination. Duh. Okay. Now there's a new section called Um Reenchantment and Postmodernity. Spirit Returns. One response to disenchantment is to actively try to reenchant the world. We might seek spirituality, magic, and mystery in nature, which is supposed to be unspoiled by science and technology and turn, for instance, to non-Christian views in order to get closer to nature or to the world of the spirits. This turn is not new. It happened already in the 19th century, and John Wallace has showed with regard to spiritualism in the United States. um, Oh, okay. Spiritualism in the 19th century. I studied that. Examples of contemporary reenchantment can be found in the rise of neo-paganism in the UK and in New Age literature. Insofar as these views are hostile to science or the scientific worldview, they differ from attempts to combine science and religion, religion as for instance... Ursula Goodenough has tried in her meditations on the wonders of nature informed by her knowledge about contemporary biology. According to her religious naturalism, the scientific account of nature can call forth appealing and abiding religious responses, in the same way as we can listen to a Mozart sonata with a sense of awe, while knowing that the music can be reduced to ink on a page. Apart from contemplating and enjoying the mysteries of nature, we also can seek spirituality in the material transformations of nature by humans and technology. I first show this below in my discussion of Gnostic and Animistic responses to technology and then offer alternative models. Gnosticism and animism share with the disenchantment and secularization views the assumption that science and technology have left us with an aspiritual world and that modern technological culture is necessarily... No, that's not true. They're saying that what connects animism to a disenchanted worldview is that they both think technology is disenchanted, when that's just simply not true. Animism thinks that all things have spirit basic. Yeah. Um, Zygmunt Bowman has argued that re-enchantment is distinctively postmodern. Richard Jenkins. Oh, I know him. Has argued more accurately that enchantment and re-enchantment are both distinctively modern and responses to modernity. Whatever term we want to use, our current culture is characterized by spiritual pluralism The dominant liberal view, faithful to its belief in a strict distinction between the public and the private, seems to hold that we are free to choose our spirituality in the religious supermarket. In contrast to politics and science, religion is seen as belonging to the private sphere in which individuals are free to choose their personal views. First, such a view could emerge only from the modern view that the world is a spiritually neutral thing on which we then project our spiritual outlook or perspective. Second, it seems to suppose that spirituality is a matter of choice, but this is often not the case. Often we re-enchant technology without even being aware of it. Most processes of re-enchantment are unintended and largely unacknowledged. Consider contemporary technological practices. W.A. Stahl has shown that our talk about computers and the internet is magical and mystical. Lee Bailey, in his book, The Enchantments of Technology, writes that there is an undertow of enchantments in our encouragement with technologies. He gives the example of android robots, which arguably are among the most enchanting of machines. From a theological angle, Stephen Garner proposes the hacking metaphor to describe the theological technological engagement. And Rosalind Byrne explores religious mythology in Ray Kurzweil's vision of new technology. Thus, there are various conceptualizations and existing practices of reenchantment. Here, I discuss two particular varieties of reenchantment Gnostic and animistic interpretations. Gnosticism and demonization. A very influential spiritual framework that plays a major but usually unacknowledged role in contemporary technology is Gnosticism. My point here is not to establish the historical role of Gnosticism in technological development, but rather to discuss an interpretation that helpfully understands some technological practices as Gnostic. Gnosticism shares with the modern and postmodern view the assumption that there is a divide between the material and the spiritual. It cannot find spirit in the material world and thus shares with modernity the feeling of alienation. In response to this situation... It turns to the spiritual, which it finds in the self. The idea is that in myself, I can find a divine spark, a light to the divine, a link to the divine. And more generally, it is by turning away from the material world that I could find the spiritual. Together with the modern myth of individual sovereignty, a response to disenchantment that can be seen as a defense against power structures Gnosticism is a powerful and attractive spiritual response to the supposed problem of the disenchantment. The Dutch sociologist Anton Jitterveld already understood Gnosticism as an escape from modern power structures. People turned inward, away from the abstract world of bureaucracy, power, and technology. Such a turn is also found in the history of Christianity. Whatever the sociological explanation is provided, there is no doubt that our technological culture is full of Gnostic practices. In particular, the rise of the internet lends itself well to a Gnostic interpretation. Steph Oppers and de Kampman use the term cybernosis to refer to a re- relocation of the sacred to the digital realm, inspired by the, de- the desire to overcome the experiences of alienation, suffering, and impotence. According to Gnosticism, we originally inhabited a divine world, but have fallen into a dark material world, and to overcome this alienation, people embrace the cyber world, which allows us to escape our mortal bodies and become spiritual entities. The cyber world is an environment where the spiritual self can flourish. Based on empirical study, Hoppers and Hopman conclude that digital technology seems to be increasingly considered the means par excellence to liberate the self from worldly suffering and imperfection and to overcome alienation in modern life. Whether or not digital technology is indeed a means to overcome alienation, hint it's not, I propose to call this desire and attitude geophobia. We want to leave the world, sometimes quite literally. True. We want to be extraterrestrial. True. Technology provides a means to escape our earthly existence. Slightly true. By means of knowledge or gnosis, we can liberate ourselves from our dark embodied existence. The internet gives us knowledge. The desire to leave the earth is intimately connected with the desire to escape our bodies and the risks related to real embodied social interaction. Hmm. There's also a risk online though. As suggested above, we can interpret some transhumanist proposals for human enchantment in these terms. Instead of only temporarily escaping to a virtual world and then returning again, we may try to upload ourselves into an immortal infosphere so that we can dispense with our earthly body. So funny. We need to not think of only exotic technologies. Writing too is a technology and can be interpreted in Gnostic terms. As Douglas Gruthius put in his popular The Soul of Cyberspace, even the shift from an oral to a written culture tended to disembody knowledge. Of course. Think about the Bible getting written. My God. Um, I lost my place. What once required the memorization and recitation by living persons can now be retrieved through the dead pages of papyri, parchment, or paper. In other words, we already download ourselves for the ages. Paradoxically, we try to achieve spiritual immortality by processes of materialization. So funny. In any case, it's clear that the Gnostic response to technology rests on the modern assumption that the world is anti-spiritual. Mm, I don't know the divide between the material and the spiritual did not have to be invented by modern Gnostics. It was already part of the culture. The turn away from the material world sometimes takes the form of a demonization of technology, which was a common move among philosophers of technology in the first half of the 20th century. The fear was, and often is, that we lose control over technology. Consider the Frankenstein myth, or the film 2001 A Space Odyssey. Here, technology appears to us as an autonomous force that, albeit our own making, turns against us, and develops in unpredictable ways. Instead of offering Gnostic liberation, technology comes to be seen as opposing threat. But the Gnostic view and the demonic view share the assumption that there is no spiritual good in material technology. Sometimes the demonic is attributed to individual artifacts or technologies, and this brings me to the subject of animism. Animism! Okay, for animists, objects have individual spirits. Technological objects are no exception to this rule, especially if they appear to think and to do things. Consider computers and robots. In spite of our scientific frame of mind, which we are supposed to have after much education and socialization in that direction, we may have the feeling that something technological lives, is animated, has spirit. Thus, animism is a denial of the assumption that the world is material without spirit. Animism maintains that it is both material and spiritual. How shall we understand this? Animism is traceable back to pre-modern, pre-Christian, and pre-theist, including polytheist, culture. If adopted in postmodern times, it may give rise to an entirely different view of the world and of society. Leaning on research by Tim Ingold and others... Swerz- Szerzynski has argued that pre-modern cultures experienced their world as an already meaningful place inhabited by humans and non-humans. There never was nature purified of the social. Nature was already social. Relations with nature in pre-modern societies were not seen as a clearly separate category of technological relations distinct from the social and the cultural. These humans cooperated with matter rather than fabricating things out of natural resources. Their Therefore, they had a greater sense of agency in non-human nature and more porous understanding of the human and non-human boundary. This understanding of pre-modern cultures can be used to criticize use of the term technological culture. Human culture has always been technological. In ancient cultures, however, what we would call material objects or technologies were strongly linked to religion or spirituality. They were embedded in a worldview that was religious, in the sense that its practices were meant to link and relink objects and persons. Now we see technology as standing apart from the rest of culture, including religion and society. Now we see technology as standing apart. Only on this assumption could the idea emerge that our culture is dominated by technology The term technological culture indicates the perception that technology is dominant and or all pervasive, but it always has been all pervasive and it is perceived as dominant only because we mistakenly disconnected it from the rest of our culture. Therefore, in this article, I continue to use technological culture to, refute it, to refer to contemporary perception of technology, while keeping in mind that technology is not an autonomous force or a separate category. Some may prefer the term technological spiritual for lack of a better term. Below, I use the term material spiritual. But let me return to animism. Animism is found in the early stages of child development. Children think that something is alive when it moves, and they speak as if of it as if it were a person. Only in the 1980s, Sherry Turkle observed that young children treat computers in this way. They are drawn into thinking psychologically about the computer because of its behavior. An explanation of such responses is offered by evolutionary psychology. One of the most successful narratives of our time, Animistic relationships are understood as adaptations to hunter-gatherer life forms. Some claim that animism is the natural way of thinking. Bruce Charlton writes, We were all animistic children once, and for most of human evolutionary history would have grown into animistic adults. Animism is therefore spontaneous, the natural way of thinking for humans. The animistic attitude to technology is not restricted to pre moderns or children. Today, people may, often without being aware of it, experience technology in animistic terms and attribute agency and spirit to things. They sometimes talk about their computer as if it were someone rather than something, give names to laptops. Giving a name is an important sign of regarding something as an individual. They get angry at vending machines and so forth. As humanoid robots appear increasingly human... They are likely not to be treated as mere things. Animism, therefore, is an important model for the relation between spirituality and technology. It also exemplifies, again, that there are many spiritual understandings already present in our technological practices. Below, I take some inspiration from animism when discussing spirit emerging in and from networks, but less from its attribution of individual spirit to things and more from its social communal dimension. Browsing the models discussed so far, it may seem that the Christian tradition is not very relevant when it comes to finding a place for spirituality in a technological culture. It seems as if Western culture has never been Christian, but this impression is erroneous. All right, let's take a break here. Okay, Creationalism, the Spirit of the Parent. New section. The three monotheist world religions, including Christianity, share a creational view of the world. The world is created by God. This view has laid the foundations for, or at least contributed to, modern science and its worldview. The creational act divides creator and creation, thereby thereby de-divining, de-divinizing that creation. The world came to be viewed as a spiritual matter, which science and technology came to understand neither as land to manage, as a landlord, or as a steward, nor as matter to shape, but as raw materials. Resources for processing and fabrication. On this view, Christian thinking is not a good framework for understanding and inspiring spirituality in a culture that is supposed to be dominated by technology. However... Christians also have viewed the relation between creator and created in the light of a very different metaphor that of parenting around this metaphor, a model of spirituality can be constructed that interprets technology in the world of things in a much more favorable way that differs from Gnostic darkness and scientific neutrality. God created us. Therefore, we are the children of God this parenting metaphor is not simply a neutral way of making the same idea sound better. It has important theological and anthropological implications. What is a parent? Christians generally see God as their father. Now, a father can be one who passed on his DNA, to put it in contemporary science terms. One could also use a production metaphor. Production is also reproduction here. According to the traditional doctrine of the imago dei, we are created in the image of God. Humans are children of God in this sense, but being a father does not necessarily imply warm concern and care. Perhaps God is not concerned with us. Fathers can be absent. Even if a father is concerned, he may communicate this concern in various ways. In the authoritarian model, a father is one who is in command of a family. Humans then have to obey the father, but a father also can be someone who does more, who cares for us, who loves us, who educates us in a different way, not only by command, and who helps us. All of these metaphorical connections need to be taken together to reconstruct a comprehensive picture of the Christian view of the relationship between God and humans. This metaphorical scheme, with its plural meaning, um, can be applied to the relationship between humans and technology. What we get is a post-Christian humanist model for spirituality in a technological culture. Let me employ the metaphors first. Things are products of human beings, sometimes actually made in our image, but they always refer to human culture. If things are our children, they cannot be aliens or monsters. They carry human genes, if you will. If we create things, we should not feel more alienated from them than we feel alienated from our children. Of course, this creation is not from nothing. We use matter available to us, which is believed to be created um, or not. Also, if we can still care to keep God in the picture, we can think of the relations in the following way. God is a grandparent of the things we make. Second, things are made by us to fulfill a function, to do their job. They are to follow our rules and contribute to our aims. They should obey us. We are in command, or at least like to be, Although this instrumentally rightly draws attention to the human purposes for which technologies are initially designed, the model gets into trouble when technology has consequences that escape our control. Third, we can come to care for the things we make. We could even come to love them. However, one cause of environmental degradation is that we care too much about the material but too little for things. We do not treat them well, we throw them away. The care model, as opposed to the reproduction and authoritarian models, is already supported in craftsmanship and stewardship models, but can be strengthened by using the parental metaphor. Today, most objects are made by industrial production, which weakens our parental connection with things. Parenting involves intense and sustained contact. Contact, investment, care, love, whereas industrial production promotes isolation, alienation, and, compl- and conflict. Philosophers of technology lamented this. Our existence becomes alienated in the age of mechanical reproduction. How could we respond to these problems? One possibility is to interpret at least some experiences of alienation in terms of the parental metaphor. Sometimes artifacts go their own way. They may act like disobedient children and not do what we want them to. However, children grow up and go their own way, which requires that parents accept distance between them and their children. The Frankenstein problem is a problem of all parent-child relations. Alienation follows procreation. We need to learn to live with it. Second, if industrial production conflicts with the care model, we could change industrial production rather than the care model. We could try to make more lovable artifacts things that people keep. Why could We could involve people in the production of artifacts— in general, we could intensify the relation between humans and things. Paradoxically, by attending more to things in the material, we can achieve more in terms of the spiritual, at least if we wish to understand the spiritual as not in opposition to the material. Rather than alienating ourselves from offspring, we should try to love our own creations, the technological culture, and the things we have made. To avoid alienation, we can make technology more familiar to us, humanize it, since it is already of our making. There is a human spark in technology to use Gnostic or, why not, Eckhardian language. Of course, the Gnostic view and Meister Eckhart's Christian view are different, blah blah blah. We can try to unite things with our purposes, feelings, hopes, and dreams. Then we will feel more at home in the world we created. We will feel more related. As I said above, given its etymology, that is one of the meanings of religion. The word derived from religiar, to relate again, to reconnect, to bind again. Religion then means, among other things, to relate humans, not only to other humans and to the divine, but to our own creations." Third, rather than seeing the relation between humans and things asymmetrically, that is, as a one-way relation from creator to created, we can see humans and things as shaping one another as co-creators. If things do things to us and touch all of our concerns, including our ultimate ones, surely they also create us in that sense. They co-shape what we are and what we want to become. Absolutely. The shift from creation to co-creation can be clarified by using a metaphor shared by contemporary biology and cyberculture, code, or writing. In one directional Christian view, the code is written by the divine author. God has written the book of the world, and we who should try to become god like good librarians and readers have to take care of that book with love and try to understand it help the de- hence the development of modern science as religion in the post christian humanist model there is either one author or many authors in what i call co-creational humanism this multi-author view is radicalized the authoritarian model is fully replaced by a democratic participatory model. We all write the code. We all create our material, spiritual, technological culture. It is an open source. There is no longer a copyright which tends to protect producers and publishers rather than authors. In its radical version, things too are writers, but just as humans, not authors. There are writers, readers, editors, and hackers. The boundaries between these activities are no longer clear, but we can experience joy in co-creation instead of alienation or jealousy between humans and things, between different entities who all want to be authors. Using the code metaphor does not imply that there is no human freedom. Only when codes are seen as blueprints is there no freedom, but codes can be used in other ways. Our DNA is not written by us and our computer programs are not written by all of us, but this does not prevent us from shaping our lives and doing things with these programs. Moreover, we learn in biology that there is not a relation of determinism between DNA and the phenotypes. The result depends on many factors that go beyond what is in the code. In similar ways, a Christian may argue that God has created the code of the world, but that how the world turns out, how it develops, how it evolves, is not in the hands of the creator. The same holds for one-directional authoritarian models of the relationship between humans and artifacts, creator and creation. What things do and become is not determined by human intention. With intelligent learning robots, the result of the learning process also cannot be predicted. The idea of co-creation with humans and things shaping one another gives more attention to the things being in the role of the writer. The symmetrical response suggests an unorthodox way of viewing the relationship between humans and things. Humans are no longer occupying the central place they held in Christianity and in humanism. The next and last model I discuss takes a further symmetrical turn, moving beyond humanism, it is perhaps closer to the social communal dimension of animism my purpose here is not to defend that or any other model of spirituality but to explore this move and its implications for our view of spirituality and of technology in order to complete this turn we need to go beyond the metaphors offered by pastoral agricultural feudal and industrial production and further attend to the technological and social structures of our own time okay The next section, maybe final, is called the spirit of and in the network and the cyborg. An important metaphor in contemporary times is the network. We see networks everywhere. There are networks between things, for instance, between computers. There are networks between humans, for instance, between academics. Now, some have argued that from one particular network, the World Wide Web, a spirit could emerge. If the WWW constitutes an enormous mind, they argue, surely it has a soul or spirit. Sometimes this view is inspired by some guy's concept, blah, blah, blah. If soul or spirit can emerge from the human brain with its vast number of connections, why not understand the spirit of the web in the same way? Connection is sacralized. The spiritualization or sacralization of connection concerns the spirit of the network in the same way as there is a spirit of a particular computer as an animism. However, this view is opposed to individual animism. Is it? Is it opposed spirit is not attributed to individual things rather spirit is supposed to emerge from a network of things If this view can be called animism at all, it is a kind of collective animism that attributes spirit to a network, to the whole of the connection between things and not to to the individual things or parts. In a similar vein, one could argue that spirit can emerge from a network of humans. Perhaps the Christian concept of the Holy Spirit could be conceived of in this way. Although in the mainstream Christian model, spirit means God, and the emphasis is more on a top-down relation, the spirit of God comes down to the people and becomes incarnate in them, The Christian tradition stresses incarnation rather than emanation. This is a top-down model because in this model, spirit is not emergent from the network, however bodily incarnation might be. But it also is conceivable that spirit emerges or emanates bottom-up from a network of social relations. Perhaps there is a further possibility. Could spirit emerge from a network of humans and things? Uh, Yeah. In such a network, there would be two kinds of spirit, or rather spirit at two levels. On one hand, there would be the spirit of the network, in the way that the web can be said to have a spirit. For instance, one could consider the Internet as a network of people and things from which spirit emerges. Here, spirituality concerns a vertical relation, and on one hand there would be spirit in the network, the sense that the material things and the spiritual humans are already connected in the network in a horizontal relation. One could even add a connection, even add a third level. Individual things and individual humans also have spirit. Thus, one could conceive of a multi-level spirituality according to a hybrid human-thing relationship model. Level three, a network of people and things, the spirit of the network, a vertical relation. Level two, a network of people and things, spirit in the network, a horizontal social relation. And level one, individual things and individual humans have individual spirits of themselves. People themselves are a network of things. Am I not correct? In the philosophy of technological literature, Latour is known for conceiving of science and, by extension, the social world as a network of what he calls actants. Both humans and non-humans do things and are connected. On the basis of Latour's model of the social, one could conceive of a spirituality in and from a community of actants. This is, of course, not a Christian and not even a humanist vision of spirituality insofar as it puts forward an ontological symmetry between human and things, as Latour does. But should there be such a symmetry? One could accommodate the humanist objection by saying that some nodes in the network, the human nodes, are more important than others. However, the network metaphor itself discourages such qualifications. This is perhaps why Latour cannot conceive of his network of actants, but in a symmetrical way. That's a critique where it's like, okay, maybe people are more important than dogs or chairs, right? Like, we should privilege people in these networks, correct? An alternative model of spirituality, which appears at least as non-Christian and non-humanist, is to shed the network metaphor and its assumption of ontological distinctiveness altogether, and to replace the dualism of the human thing with the cyborg view. In such a view, spirit and matter are already united. There is no need of a network between human and things if they are all are already connected in much more intimate or deeper ways than is assumed in the network model. The spirit of the cyborg is already a union of human and non-human and of matter and spirit. In response, the network view might distinguish itself from the cyborg model by interpreting cyborgs as special cases within a networked world of distinctive humans and things rather than the default ontological and spiritual mode. It is then assumed that sometimes or in some cases humans and technology, spirit and matter, come closer to one another or unite, but that is not usually the case, or one might understand cyborg being as a matter of degree. Wearing glasses is perhaps a lower degree of cyborg existence than working every day and all day with a computer. I'm well, not sure about that. In any case, the multi-level model of network spirituality is very much in tune with the pre-modern and pre-Christian view of the natural understood as the social. Duh, we already said this. Humans and things live together in one world, and spirit is in them and emerges from their cooperation. This model, I think, I think... For me, it's like there are things and then the relationship between things are also things. And if all things have spirit, then the relationship between all Christians, for instance, is a spirit in and of itself emergent from the network, but is is its own thing, right? An emergent thing. Note the use of the word reconnection. This model of spirituality rests on a very different conception, not only of spirituality, but also of society, in any case, the multi-level humans and things... Yeah. According to this model, society is not something we create. Both the modern and the post-Christian humanist worldview assume that the social world is of our own making. Similarly, although we create things, we are not completely masters of technology, not because our creatures may turn against us like the Frankenstein fear, but because we live together and cooperate in a network that is by definition not completely in our own hands. The network evolves in various ways. And some of them are unpredictable and uncontrollable. But in this model, this is not an experience of alienation because we are part of the network. Technological artifacts are not aliens, but our social fellows. It is an experience of a social problem, a problem of communication. How can we create community? In spiritual terms, it is a problem of finding communion between humans and between humans and non-humans. In religious terms, it is about reconnecting humans to other humans and to things. Note the use of the idea of reconnection. Again, this is different from saying that there is no individuation and that the parts are not separable, that that we are already cyborgs, that we are already part of things, and that things are part of us. A defender of the network view may respond that this is true only to some extent and that a spiritual effort is needed to reconnect, but without aiming at the loss of individual distinctness Note also that the idea of the evolving network in which all human and non-human fellows constitute one another does not necessarily exclude a weak notion of co-creation. As long as speaking of creation does not assume full full control or authorship, and as long as the spirit that emerges is not seen as reducible to what is co-created, technological culture as a network is the space where tragedy reveals itself where we are not merely drivers of spirit, but perhaps rather its vehicle. We are not in full control. The network and its spirits evolve. This idea of evolution is not the same as a Neo-Darwinian idea of evolution. I discuss the evolution of material spiritual networks, not the evolution of organisms or species, that's usually understood in science. The network model recognizes the spiritual dimension of contemporary technology and avoids using that term, a term that can easily interpreted as a modern notion that tries to eliminate spirituality from the world both the network model and the cyborg model try to do justice to experiences of connection rather than alienation and often wonderful and sometimes fearful ways in which humans and things matter spirit are linked and perhaps unite in technological culture Note finally and these models are better able to cope cope with so-called hybrids and processes of hybridization modernity modernity tried to keep different spheres separated but as latour has argued there are hybrid social problems such as global warming deforestation which involve humans and things there are also hybrid things some intimate relations between humans and technology can be seen as constituting cyborgs such as a relation between humans and computers and there are more literal cyborgs cyborgs in the future scientists are increasingly able to connect to the living with the dead and more technology may be integrated. Um, According to the modern view, such hybrids can be understood only as horror. They cross the boundaries and the domains and are therefore cultural monsters. According to the creational model of spirituality, they constitute another crossing that of the boundary between creator and created. I do not know for sure how this is to be evaluated within that model is it to be avoided or is it to be desired? In the latter, it seems to be appro- it seems to approach what Christianity means by communion, which involves taking another body as part of one's own. According to the network model, humans and things should be connected. But should they unite? Perhaps some kinds of cyborgs and hybrids in some environments and contexts may well achieve the much-desired communion between spirit and matter. For some, such a union is a dangerous idea, and for others, it is what spirituality is all about. Okay, end of section. Okay, the final pages. This is called Conclusion. (laughs) I started with the question, can a technological culture accommodate spirituality? To pose the question in this way, it turned out mistakenly assumes that the material and the spiritual are unrelated or hostile to one another. In practice, people often practice... In practice, people often practice animism or Gnosticism when dealing with contemporary information technology in general. Our contemporary culture incorporates many spiritual and religious myths and assumptions. As I suggest, it is more technological spiritual or material spiritual than technological. In this article, I disclosed a broader repertoire of models of spirituality. Oh my god, the eh, conclusion I don't even want to read the conclusion. Okay. Well, that article was good in some senses, but not great. Um, I'm just realizing I have a second thing here. And I'm just going to read... I've already read it, apparently, and I've highlighted some parts. So maybe I'll just read my highlighted parts. The second one is... Oh, it's by the same author. (laughs) Um, and it's about how the secular and modern are technological practices. In this essay, I argue that there are at least two ways in which religion and spirituality are still highly relevant. First, in our technological culture cult, currently. Oh my God, I don't know. It's the same shit. um yeah i can't read it all right thanks for listening you guys that was fun i guess i don't know see you in the next episode bye